Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at volantwear.com and follow us on our socials at volantwear. On this episode of the podcast, we're speaking to the current number 22 in the world for men's doubles and ninth in the world for mixed doubles. He is an Olympic bronze medalist in men's doubles, a Commonwealth Games gold medalist in mixed doubles and European champion in both events. He's someone that many of you will know. He's from England and his name is Marcus Ellis. I really want to win, but I personally would much rather just perform really well. And if I perform really well, I'm happy. And I know other people would maybe say, no, no, winning is everything. But I'm much more of a, if I can compete to the best I can, then what more can you do? For me, it was like there was always something else to learn. With quite a lot of sports that I tried, I found them really one-dimensional. And as hard as they were to pick up or get good at, it was very much, this is what you need to do. And if you do this well, you'll be good at that sport. Whereas badminton, it just seemed like there were so many different aspects of things that you could improve on. So for me, I'd say that was probably the single biggest thing, is, which I think is a positive of badminton, is that maybe people who don't play the sport don't realise how many different aspects there are to make a complete player. Thanks for coming on to the podcast, Marcus. No problem at all. Happy to be here. We're super excited to have you on and want to jump into all things badminton straight away. But just curious, what does life look like for you outside of badminton? What are some of your hobbies or interests that are your go-to activities when you're taking a break from training and competitions? You know what, actually, we don't get loads of downtime. And the things that I'd like to do, I probably shouldn't do as an athlete. So you know, I'd love to go out with my friends more and go on holidays with them, etc. That's what I choose to do. But as if I was being 100% professional, unfortunately, you have to give up quite a lot of that sort of stuff. And it's not that it's a boring lifestyle or anything like that, but you know, you kind of have to get into this kind of military mindset where badminton is kind of number one and everything else kind of comes secondary. So when I go home, obviously I live with Lauren, who is also a badminton player. For us to get away from that badminton chat or whatever it is, it is really difficult for us. And the only time we ever really get away from it is if we were to go on holiday. And I know like lots of people would say, oh, I've got other hobbies outside of badminton. But I would honestly say 
we almost don't. Badminton, it has to be like 100% and almost nothing else. You know, that's one of the best things about retiring at an earlier age. Hopefully you've still got time to enjoy the some of the other stuff. What do you think the first thing is that you want to try or do when you do finally retire? I'd like to maybe try some other sports, which I'd almost guarantee I'd probably injure myself. Unbelievably, my coordination is actually not very good. But for some reason on a badminton court, seems quite good. But my balance is actually really, really poor. One of my best friends, he's, he goes skiing a lot. I don't get me wrong, I'd be terrified. I'm terrified of everything. But I'd love to give something like skiing a go just because I think it would be, it's completely different. It's quite challenging. So that'd probably be something I'd like to do. Whether I break my leg or not, who knows, but let's just <laughs> gotta cross your fingers on that one. Yeah, I think skiing and snow sports is a big one for badminton players and athletes that they can only do it when they retire because you can so easily do your knee or do something really bad, right? Uh, I had an injury from snowboarding and luckily it was my left hand. So it's okay, but <laughs> it's so easy just to do one thing wrong and then in that instance, you're just out of control and you have no control of what's going to happen to your body. So yeah, I think as a beginner as well, it's like, you don't have a clue what you're doing. So, you know, if you, if you do something wrong, you could do it really, really wrong. And then it's, yeah, what's that? exactly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're telling you to evacuate the hotel room now. Actually, I think it's probably a, some sort of meal that's come or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so for everyone listening, that was the doorbell because right now at the time of recording, Marcus is in Bangkok in Thailand and he's in, in isolation because of COVID-19. And you've been doing that for, I think, about a week now already in preparation for the tournaments, Thailand Open, so two of them, so the Yonex Thailand Open, Toyota Thailand Open, and then the World Tour Finals. So just as from a perspective from the inside, because we can only hear what's happening from the outside. How has it been since arriving in Bangkok with all the restrictions? It's very different. A lot of the players are not used to having their, their freedoms taken away from them. There's been a lot of negativity and things like that. But if it was a choice between that or do whatever you want, I would probably choose this because it's by far the safest. I do feel like everyone is being really kept together with no outside influence. So if I could choose one, I would choose the way that they're doing it. As much as I hate being confined in this hotel room, I think it's the right thing to do at the moment. Yeah. And in terms of how you've been preparing, I mean, it's probably not the most ideal situation. In terms of preparation is concerned, whilst in the confinements of your own room, how has that been? How do you feel about that? So after the first two to three days, it was that you just stuck in the hotel room when you first got here. After that, you're allowed out to the courts or to the gym. It's scheduled for everybody. And even though I think out the window, we can see where we're playing. The bus will take you. It's like 30 seconds in the bus. So, you know, you walk out the hotel onto the bus. The bus drives a minute and then you get straight off and straight into the arena. So, you know, everyone is really, really contained. But we have been able to hit once a day in practice. So maybe it's not as much as people are used to. But you know, the way I see it, it's the same for everybody. It's equal and... I'm sure they'll still see some great performances. I've been seeing lots of workouts in the hotel rooms, like lots of jumping and skipping, and I see people hitting against the walls. And I'm thinking the hotel room aren't designed for athletes to be jumping on and hitting shuttles at. Have you been doing in-room workouts as well? We have, especially in that first few days. You'd like to say it's something we're not used to. Even in lockdown in England, you're allowed to go out the house to exercise or something. So 
you can go completely crazy if you're just lying on your bed all day. There's not even a chair to sit in really other than this one I'm sat in now. So um, <laughs> the first few days were definitely the toughest, but Lauren's actually really good creating programs like that. And I could just kind of like copy and follow along. The whole team is actually in separate rooms. Lauren and I are only sharing because we're actually live together at home. It's technically allowed, but you know, the rest of the England team, they each have their own room. So they don't have anyone to talk to in between the other 20 hours of the day that we're stuck in the room there. They're all alone. So from that perspective, I guess we're quite, we're quite lucky. Yeah, I guess you're super grateful about that because it can be incredibly isolating because they're, they're so isolated, right? Hopefully, that it's not something that you have to do for many tournaments going forward. But in terms of you're saying that you know, you're following Lauren in terms of her routines indoors, is there anything that you've learned specifically yourself that you do differently the next time, hopefully not next time, but the next time you need to isolate again for other tournaments? I think you realize that you don't need as much as we had. Usually you've got access to like gyms and the courts and so much space. After you've been confined, you learn a lot about yourself and how much you actually need to prepare, which isn't actually as much as people think. It's just kind of the quality of life that we've kind of got used to where we can have everything that we want. I think if anything comes out of this, for whether it's the tournaments in Europe in March or the tournaments again in, in Asia in March, April time, I think we'll be better prepared just from what we've done here. Just because I think everyone came here knowing what to expect. The rules were in place, but nobody really knew. From a preparation point of view, I think next time around, everyone will feel a lot better prepared, whether it's working out in your rooms, realizing actually I can do quite a lot just with a tiny little bit of space down there by the window. I don't need to have a big track to run around and things like that. Yeah, that's really good. So hopefully that will allow players to still perform really, really well. I know that you did play Denmark Open and that was kind of like the first COVID tournament. Just throughout the rest of 2021, I know it is hard to predict. What do you think the permanent things will be that are ongoing in tournaments to come? So I guess COVID has really opened everyone up to this idea that, hey, how many things are you touching? How many hands are you shaking? And even when the virus is gone, it's going to be in everyone's head to think, what have I done with my hands today? And what am I doing? So do you see anything on the badminton scene and in tournaments that you would expect continue on far beyond COVID? I think the majority of things will return to normal because I think people do miss that human interaction, contact. But I do think one thing that will take a while to come back will be things like handshaking, rather than at the moment you've just got to acknowledge your opponent say thanks for the match or I think that will take a little bit of time to come back because I think the COVID has highlighted how easily germs can spread for example how people are like oh everything I touch has got germs on it and it could kill me and germs are on everything right and your body gets immune to it but it's just the, the way that we live now it's like we're like super clean freaks it's probably more habits that will change and take a while to get back to normal for me personally, like I really miss stuff like handshake and I think it's super important to show respect to the person you're about to play or have just played. And to be honest, at the end of a match, I find it really awkward. Whether you won or lost, you kind of just say, thank you. <laughs> I just don't think it's a very nice way to finish a match. So I hope that when COVID is finally over, and I'm sure it will be at some point, that things can just go back to 100% how they were before because there was nothing wrong with that in my eyes. 
Yeah, I agree entirely, Marcus. And yeah, there's so much of that human element, that contact that, that we do need um, as people and as players. And I know from my experience more recently, when I went back to the courts, every time I finish a game, there's a new way of, of you know, sportsmanship is whether it's just like we touch the rackets at the end of the rackets or, you know, we high five and not touch at all. It's There's so many different ways to finish off the match in terms of a sportsmanship-like way. It's certainly very awkward and hoping that, like you said, that we can get back to some semblance of normal where we can actually give the other opponent a, a bit of a handshake. Marcus, before we move on to some of our main topic, main questions today, I do want to ask you this one. It's a bit of a curly one. As Chris's men's doubles partner, we must ask, how much hair product does Chris Langridge go? <laughs> I actually don't know. You just think it's like super wet or... I just think it's like very well formed. A tornado could run through and he'd just be perfectly shaped afterwards. From what I remember, he has like this spray and he can use it in the morning or before a match or whatever. I don't know what it is. If he sweeps it that way, it will just stay that way and you know, nothing will move it. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. So if people are enjoying his hairstyle, then I can't help you, unfortunately. It is this spray that seems to hold everything in place, but I'm not sure... <laughs> I think it's also related that each point he's usually putting it in. So it's, it's always getting a, a good bit of a replacement each time as well. He always seems to be rushing it over. Yeah, I mean, it takes a long time to do a lot of stuff, even his hair, but that's just him. That's his habit. And sometimes I think people get frustrated because he's taking quite a lot of time. I don't know whether it's his hair or something underneath. But yeah, I know people do get frustrated with him because it does take time. It's just him. Honestly, on-court and off-court is the same. Well, great badminton player regardless. Yeah, exactly. So Marcus, what we'll do is we'll move on to where we often start a lot of our podcasts and it is getting back to the roots of how you, Marcus Ellis, became the badminton player you are today. So from the very beginning, how did you get started? What age were you? And yeah, we want to just hear what your badminton story has been. So I think around six Six years old, I was probably introduced to badminton from my dad. Uh, he took me down to his local club. It wasn't a very high standard club or anything like that. It was just a really local one that he used to play at once a week. And they let me have a little hit with everybody. And that's kind of like where I started. And instantly I took to it. Even at six years old, I think, to engage a child of that age. They couldn't get me off. I was running on and always wanting to play. And usually kids get bored of stuff quite quickly and want to move on to the next thing and then the next thing. But for me, it was that, you know, I was always asking when we're next going to play and all that sort of thing. For a couple of years, that was my badminton. I just played once a week with my dad and whoever else was at that club. And that was it for a couple of years. I think after enough pestering, I managed to get another session out of them, which I think was at a weekend. I think I was eight years old. I was then hitting two times a week. From when I was eight to 10, 11, things happened very, very quick. So I went from doing that to hitting, I'd say, almost every night. So it wasn't always local. Sometimes I'd drive, well, I'd drive. My mom or dad would drive me an hour to the next city where the best badminton sessions were. I think at 12 was my first like England call-up as a junior. So I was kind of involved in the England junior setup right from the beginning, which I think has helped me a lot because your experience ultimately is what, in my opinion, is kind of like what molds you as a player. And yeah, I've been in the England program ever since. As I was growing up through the juniors, I had a very set week. So I think on a Monday through till Thursday, I would train every evening in our regional setup. 
And then I wouldn't say every weekend, but almost every weekend, there was a tournament that we would travel to. We were driving hours, two, three hours every single time. And so, you know, my mum and dad actually had to put a lot of time in. And it's certainly something that I wouldn't ever take for granted now that you do like when you're that age. But looking back, they gave up however many weekends and their evenings throughout the week. So it certainly wouldn't have been possible without them. And then I think I was 18. I was doing my in-between secondary school and university. And I made the decision to go full-time at the National Badminton Centre. And from there, I never looked back. So from 18, I've been training full-time. It's been pretty full-on ever since. And I'm 31 now. So it's been a, been a good few years. Yeah, you're 31 years young and um, hopefully you've still got a lot of years of badminton left in you. And I think it's a good moment to thank Papa and Mama Ellis for all their hard work when you were young and then taking you around to all these tournaments and trainings and, and whatnot. It certainly seems that you've had a relatively smooth run. Maybe we can ask you about what some of those challenges or barriers you've had during those, I guess, more formative or younger years. But before I do that, let's time travel back to when you were six years old. Marcus, can you remember when you were six years old, what it was about badminton that you were really excited about that made you want to go every week and play all the time? What was it about the sport that you loved so much at that young age? For me, it was like there was always something else to learn with quite a lot of sports that I tried. I found them really one dimensional and as hard as they were to pick up or get good at, it was very much, this is what you need to do. And if you do this well, you'll be good at that sport. Whereas badminton, it just seemed like there were so many different aspects of things that you could improve on. Obviously, when you first start, it's your hand-eye coordination and being able to hit the shuttle. And then I went to a different coach and then it was all about my movement and my footwork patterns and all this sort of thing. Even when I was like coming out of juniors, there was still so many different things I was learning. And I think that for me was the best thing because every single day you could learn something new that you didn't think you were going to. And for me, I feel like I have to be really engaged Otherwise, I get quite bored of stuff. And I was saying about a child, I'd kind of like move on to the next thing because I get bored quite quickly. So for me, I'd say that was probably the single biggest thing is, which I think is a positive of badminton, is that I think maybe people who don't play the sport don't realise how many different aspects there are to make a complete player. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the story that we're telling a lot of different people and everyone from around the world basically says the same story, no matter what country they're from, is that people think that badminton is that one-dimensional sport that you just play in the backyard or at the beach. And the common thing is, oh, that, that sport where that shuttle thing or that ball goes really slow, right? It just lobs up in the air and you're like, no, it's the fastest racket sport. And people just don't understand. So completely in the same boat as you in terms of all the aspects of badminton. Now, if we move forward into your career, and I know that you were in the National Centre at Milton Keynes, but we've had a chat to a lot of English players. So Raj Usurf, Toby Penty, Ben Beckman, uh, Rob Middleton, Peter Brigg, and lots of different players. And one common theme that comes up in terms of being a professional athlete or badminton player in England is the fighting for the funding positions. So making sure that you're, you're getting results so you stay funded and some people lose their funding, some people get back on funding, and sometimes that ends their careers because they have nowhere else to go. What was your experience with the funding part of it? And was it a very stressful kind of thing for you where you're always competing and scared that you might lose funding? Yeah, I think when I was younger, coming out of my junior years um, into my early 20s, it was always something that was on your mind. So every year there would be a player review and you could just get removed. I mean, there's a criteria that you have to meet. 
So it's not just, oh, we don't like you, you know, you're out or anything like that. But there is a very strict criteria, criteria of both performance and just general improvement criteria that you had to meet. So I can certainly see why the English players that you've spoke to definitely feel that way. I did feel that way also. I mean, I don't know how much our funding story, but in 2016, we actually lost our government funding and Badminton England had to try and fund whatever they could. And things have changed quite a lot. They really want players to carry on playing and they're doing everything they can to help them. I think since then, things have changed a little bit. For example, I think if Chris, my doubles partner, on the UK spot funding, I think just based on the criteria, it would have been difficult to keep him on because of his age now. I think he's like 35, 36. The criteria itself could almost remove him from the program. It's absolutely crazy to think. But we've actually just heard that we may be getting some funding back into the sport, which is fantastic news. How things will actually change, who knows? Because three years ago, we had to take our program apart. I think we lost half the players, including Peter Briggs. He was part of that generation that kind of lost out. And now there's a massive gap between the ages. So you've got me who's 30, early 30s, and then it drops right down to people who are 23, 24. And we're missing, now missing that gap where there was Matthew Nottingham and Peter Briggs and Chris Coles. You know, I'm sure you heard all the names who used to play, but unfortunately, because of the funding situation, they just couldn't carry on any longer. And if you can't play at the National Badminton Centre UK, you probably can't, or I should say in England, you can't really make a, like a really good career for yourself. Yeah, and it's certainly to the detriment of the future of the sport there to have that kind of gap, especially when older players, I wouldn't call you that old, Marcus, but older players, yeah, I guess the older players might leave the sport and then we're left with a gap and and little role models for those younger ones to look up to or not experience around to help them in their journey as well, which is certainly a shame. But it's really exciting to hear that there is more funding coming in England. hope so. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I really hope so. Fingers crossed. Uh, now, Marcus, talking about professional badminton, and I think this is, I guess, you're one of the few players on tour who actually do, does quite well in two events. So I think it's really important for listeners to try and get some insights from a player like yourself. So how do you cope physically and mentally playing two events? I mean, you could just go play mixed doubles and, you know, have a really grueling battle, three set match, and just have a back-to-back men's doubles match later that day. So how do you cope with it both physically and mentally? I think from a physical point of view, you know what's coming. You know, if you're playing two events, you're either going to be fit enough or you're not. And I will certainly say that I've lost matches in tournaments because I've played two events. I can definitely say that because I ran out of steam. But I would say I train a lot in men's doubles, which is a much higher speed than mixed doubles usually. And that helps my mixed doubles. So I would say as a positive, me just going down to one event, I would say I could potentially lose out on... So if I play mixed and my men's doubles was, you know, I'm not training anymore. I'm losing out on this quick training. Almost sort of my reactions might get slower just from playing one event. So, you know, you've kind of got all these different things. You're like, oh, I could be less tired, but then I'm learning better things when I'm playing men's doubles. I think from a mental point of view, you have to just be ready to feel exhausted. For me, it does come down to your physical condition. And a lot of players, I think, give up before they're really, truly tired. 
I've played a lot of players in the past and I can see them giving up and they are tired, but they're not exhausted. And if they're not dragging you off in a wheelchair, then you're clearly not that tired, you know? But that's kind of like what I think is tired. So I think that kind of mindset is something that's allowed me to play both events. Whereas I've seen some people, like they look tired and then, okay, they're gone. They, you know, they're still fine. If they wanted to, they could carry on. So in my eyes, they're not really that tired and you could carry on. To be able to balance both like that. And I would say I play the physical role in both. In men's doubles, I would also say I'm more the rear court player, putting in the kind of like graft, if you like. I'm kind of doing it twice a day as well. It is a challenge, but at the moment I wouldn't change it because I think both events do complement each other and you can learn stuff in mix to help your men's and vice versa. Pros and cons for sure, but I am happy playing both. Fantastic. So when you do talk about managing them and being prepared to have that really be exhausted and have that match later and that you have to play really hard and a recall player, are there any set routines you have between matches or that help you with like your recovery or do you eat something in particular that really helps you? Do you recover in a way or do you try to sleep X amount between matches? What helps you recover and be ready for the next match usually? I think for me, I have a couple of areas on my body that I struggle with more than others. And I'm sure everybody's the same. One person might be like, oh, my knee starts to get a bit sore or my shoulder starts to get... So whatever that area is or areas, I take quite a lot of time to try and look after them because I am playing two events. I can't afford to not be professional because it only takes one match for you to not be professional and you could get injured and things can go horribly wrong. So for me, getting ready for my next match is all about looking after my vulnerable areas and everyone has them. I want to tell everyone what my vulnerable areas. I do have a couple, the ones I have to really keep an eye on. From a, any sort of eating perspective, I eat as much as I can. There's no like, oh, I eat this, that or the other, because at tournaments, you can't afford to be fussy about what you're eating. You're just like, whatever I can get, I'm going to eat it as long as it's good nutritional value. I'll take it. I really would. Yeah, yeah. So just consume as much as humanly possible and guard your vulnerable areas, which we won't tell everyone on the podcast because that, that wouldn't be ideal for anybody listening that plays you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Marcus, you've outlined sort of what you do in between your professional matches, right? You know, you're guarding certain vulnerable areas, making sure that they're yeah, nice and solid for your next match and you're, you're consuming as much as humanly possible, preferably of good nutritional value. What about when you're at home, like in between tournaments, just training? Is there any sort of different physical and mental training that you do at home that prepares you for these tournaments? At home, everything is different. You can afford to be a lot more picky or fussy about everything, whether it's your food or your training. You can really tailor it to how you want. When I'm at home, I have the food that I want. To be honest, I probably eat more at a tournament than I do when I'm training. You know, you'd think it should be the other way around because your training volume is always a lot higher, in my opinion, than when you're playing. Yeah, for me, because I am playing two events, I have to be willing to work harder and longer than other people. You know, I can't just do what people who are doing one event are doing. I have to be doing extra, always doing extra. That's from a physical point of view. And sometimes you think, why am I doing this? Because you don't need to. But whilst my body can do it, I'll definitely carry on like pushing my body, seeing what I can get out of it, because I do still feel like there's a little bit more in there, I think. 
Definitely. So when you say about adding, say, more training and doing more than, say, someone who plays one event would, what does that mean? Do you have to go into the gym an extra time? Do you train for longer? Do you do more shadow? What does that look like to put in those extra yards? I'm sure for everyone, they'd have a different answer. But for me, how I tend to approach it is I do a little bit more and often. So, you know, I won't do a whole extra session worth. But if we have a morning session at the end of it, I will do extra physical. It won't be like an hour or anything, but I'll do another 15, 20 minutes where I'm going to push myself. And as much as it gives you the physical edge, I think it helps you mentally prepare to play two events. You have to be ready to go on court knowing that you can go toe-to-toe with somebody physically. And yeah, obviously physically it helps, but mentally that is massive as well. If I could step on court against you and say, now go on, like we've made this match as long as we like. It's no problem. We can have the longest rallies in the world and I'm going to beat you. If that's the way we go, then I'll beat you. You know, that's a massive mental edge and something that's really big, big for me. And in terms of like all the achievements you've had, Marcus, you know, you've certainly been able to perform pretty well when it matters. And I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on you when that happens as well. But how do you actually feel before matches? Because I, I know a lot of the times from as an outsider looking at professional players, we're just like, oh, yeah, Momoda probably has no stress at all when he plays singles. Or, you know, Kevin and uh, Marcus probably have no stress before their matches. But how do you feel before your matches? I think as I've got more experienced, I feel less pressure to perform. I think when you're younger, you're so keen and all you're thinking about is winning, which obviously that's the most important thing is that you win. But as I've, I keep wanting to say older, I'm going to say more experienced. I've kind of realized that there's other things, whether you lose 21 love, you win 21 love, the world still turns and nobody really cares. That's the way I've kind of like dealt with it, with feeling any sort of nerves. I really want to win, but I personally would much rather just perform really well. And if I perform really well, I'm happy. And I know other people would maybe say, no, no, winning is everything. In fact, Lauren would probably be one of those who would say winning is everything. (laughs) But I'm much more of a, if I can compete to the best I can, then what more can you do? There has been plenty of times in the past where I've gone on and I've been a bucket of nerves, you know, in what I considered was a big match. And in the grand scheme of things, it really wasn't. And I performed really badly and I came off and I was like, look, just going to go home as is everybody else. Everything's going to carry on like normal. And, you know, why did you feel like that? And it's only those experiences that can kind of make you realize yourself. You're like, I play badminton because I love it, right? I don't play it to feel like this. And I know it is a really common thing and, you know, I know loads of people struggle with it. But that's kind of like my take on it as I've played more and more matches and tournaments throughout the years. That's really good advice. And I guess something that you will learn when you do get more experience. But I guess if you were saying that to say a younger person, so maybe they're, I don't know, 17, 18 years old, and you're saying, hey, the world will still turn, which it absolutely will. Do you feel that there's this fine line between if you say that, then they kind of take responsibility off themselves and say, oh, that's okay. I won't try for that. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine tomorrow. That balance between being strict and harsh with yourself, but also having that elements of relaxation per se, when you say, okay, everything's going to be fine in the end. Do you find that some people do go the other way and they kind of just go, oh, that's right. It doesn't matter anyway. And then they just give up or they just don't put in. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a delicate balancing act. I think it probably varies from person to person. If I was to say that to someone who was 17, 18, like you're absolutely right. They might just say, all right, does that mean I'm like, I don't try now or like, what does it mean? I do think that you have to go through it to fully understand 
So, you know, they have to go through that match of feeling completely shackled with nerves and then say, okay, well, what can I do next time? And then the next time they might be like really relaxed and do it completely wrong again. All right, well, I need to find somewhere in the middle. And it might take quite a long time, but if the player is actually willing, they will eventually get somewhere in the middle where that actually works for them. I still don't get it right all the time. There's still matches where we get it wrong, whether I'm over excited for a match or not. We're always searching for the right answers. Ultimately, the guys at the top of the game, they have them for some reason. But I guarantee you when Kevin and Marcus go on court, maybe not every match, but there'll be plenty of matches where they're feeling a hell of a lot of pressure. Yeah, definitely. I would think that they would be too. I just wonder what they're what they're using to combat that nerve and pressure when they when they do go on to those uh, pressure games. Are they counting to three in their head or just something super simple? I wish it was that simple, Marcus. Yeah, so do I. But uh, yeah, look, if you find out, let us know so we can share it with uh, all the badminton <laughs> players out there as well. <laughs> so Marcus, look, you've achieved so much in your career and there's so much more to come. 30 is is young these days. 30 is the new 18. I've just decided that oh, <laughs> on the badminton podcast. Maybe not for badminton players. Okay, 13, 30 is the new 25. Let's go with that. How does that sound? <laughs> you know, underneath victories and, and the performance, there's you, there's Marcus Ellis, the person underneath the player that is responsible for everything that you've done. So I'm asking you as a person, why is it that you do what you do? What's the deeper meaning behind it? I think the reason why I chose badminton as a, something that I wanted to do for my job or a career is that you are completely in control of what's going on. For me, I find it really scary giving myself to someone else or to another company from one day to the next, they can end your career like that. I do find that really, really scary. So ever since I was young, whatever it was, I wanted to do it alone. So I was in control of my own destiny or I was in charge of what was going on. I want to be my own boss and all this sort of thing. I mean, I couldn't say a team sport is also probably wouldn't suit me, but playing a sport where there's only me. I'm my partner now. I felt like I had control of my career, which ultimately that's, I felt that was a good thing because the responsibility is yours and yours alone. That's a really, really big thing for me. Badminton definitely gives me that. And I think even after badminton, I go on to whatever job it is, I will want to do something also similar where I can take full responsibility of what's going on. Whether I have responsibility of other people or just myself, I'd very much like to like the book to stop with me. That gives me real like life satisfaction, I think. Yeah. I really like the clarity that you have on that, Marcus. Talking about being in control and, and having control of your own destiny is, is something that I really like to hear from you. So thank you for sharing that. And I know it is for you're saying that it's just so that you have control. And in part, it sounds like you're doing it for you. But I want to ask you the question so I can clarify you know, who is it for? Is it for the sacrifices that your parents made? Is it more for you? Is like, who is it really for? Do you know, unbelievably, I was never actually been the most competitive person in the world. So it seems quite strange to go into a sport where all you do is compete against somebody else. But I soon realized that no matter what you end up doing, you're competing, whether you're playing a sport or just a normal job, you're competing against everyone for your whole life. It's kind of like the way I uh, quickly learned when I went into badminton at 18, I did it because I believed that I actually had something to give. And at that age, I probably, like I said, never fully thanked my parents, for example, and really realized just how much they did for me. 
obviously now it's getting to a point where I've achieved a lot of what I set out to achieve. I still feel like I've got things that I want to do. But, you know, when I see how happy like my parents are when I get a good result, that makes me feel so much better than anything I could feel, any accolades or prize money that I could get to actually see them like that. It's them 15 years of terrible sports centers and actually it all seems worth it. So I think now it's getting to a point where to see them watch me play, I think is actually, it's a really big thing for me. That's really nice. And I'm sure that your parents are super proud of you as well for everything you've done. And I guess as a parent, they would have just done that instinctively. And I guess when a lot of us look back and see what our parents have done for us, we all have that feeling that in the end, if it's making them happy, if they're happy with what we've done and then we're happy. But then on the other side, they're thinking the opposite thing. They're thinking as long as you're happy, then I'm happy. So it is a bit of a cross change there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Marcus, you've gone into kind of that deeper meaning behind the things that you've done and how you like to take full responsibility for things, regardless of whether it's badminton or in your life. But what would you say that your definition of success is? I know there's achievements out there, there's medals, there's Olympic medals, there's Commonwealth Games medals. But if you were going to say, hey, I've had a really successful life or this person is really successful, what would you say that would be? Oh, that's a tough question, that. I think when you get older, you look back on your badminton career and it's only a really small part of, you know, of your whole life. In that sense, my achievements that I've had in badminton will hopefully they'll be right up there, but they may also not be. My achievements from when I'm 35 onwards, I could see as being far greater, you know. I could have children of my own who, uh, when I'm older, I can be proud of them and I could say that is the most successful thing I've ever done. And maybe if you ask my parents, they might say like, me and my brother were the most successful thing they've ever done. So I could only answer that as, at the moment, as my badminton achievements would be, that is success. But looking down the line, what I see as success, having like a good, healthy life is by far more important. Your family is everything. And that's where you kind of like, you get some perspective, don't you? Because whatever it is you're doing, like for me, it's badminton, it's, it's everything, right? But then all of a sudden, sometimes you get some perspective on life and be like, it's just a game where you're whacking a... <laughs> You know, you're whacking a dead bird to each other. Do you know what I mean? Yes. That's kind of like one of those things where you have to like take a step back and say, but you know, going back to the whole nerves thing, it's like, that's the kind of perspective sometimes you need on it. Again, I think it's one of those things you can only get as you get a bit more experience, not just in badminton, but as you go through your years, you start to see, okay, well, actually that was really important to me. That was success. It's quite hard to answer at the moment because badminton is everything to me. I can see, you know, in 10 years time, my answer will be completely different. Yeah. I think I'm just fixated on the imagery of whacking a dead bird um, back and forth. (laughs) That's going to be the quote of the podcast, isn't it? I love it. It's brilliant, Marcus. (laughs) But you're right. There's so much in life that badminton is, is one chapter of Marcellus and there's going to be so much more going forward and hopefully so much more still in terms of badminton as well. But in terms of success and what that definition is that I guess it is dynamic and that'll change. And maybe when we get you back on episode 5,400 in 10 years time, we will be able to, you know, talk about what that looks like for you at that time. In terms of, I guess, your badminton career and and the badminton aspects of your success, let's hone in on that. I guess this question is, hopefully this doesn't happen, but this question does hopefully uh, get you some uh, food for thought and, and I think listeners might, might enjoy this one. So if you were to end your badminton career 12 months from now, Marcus, 
What would be the most important thing that you'd do during these 12 months? Oh, I mean, I'd want to play as much as possible. I think knowing that my career was ending in 12 months, I think it'd actually be really sad for me. And I hope that I'd never be in a position where I'd say, in this amount of time, I'm going to stop. Because for me, it'd just be like a ticking time bomb. It'd be a really emotional 12 months for me because you know it's not like something that I've done for a couple of years in my whole adult life. It's kind of all I've known. The thought of doing something else is really, really scary. If I only had 12 months left of my career, I'd travel around and play all the tournaments that I wanted to play before that maybe I never did. That way I can finish knowing that I've kind of ticked every box. Results aside, you know, I've ticked every box with regards of what I wanted to do as, a, as an athlete. Great. So awesome career so far, Marcus, and much more to come, much more than 12 months. That was just a question just to see what your thinking would be if it was something like that happening. So sorry to put you under the pressure there and hopefully it didn't bring up any raw emotions. Ah, that's all right. <laughs> Good practice. <laughs> <laughs> But I can definitely tell that you've come a long way in terms of your achievements, development as a badminton player, but definitely as a person as well, your perspective that you have on success and how grateful you are for your parents' help. And I'm sure there's heaps and heaps and heaps of people that, that have helped you on the way. So I just wanted to give you this opportunity just on the podcast, just to name off as many people as you'd like, just a bit of a token of gratitude or, or saying thank you for making a big impact on your badminton career so far. Of course, you're going to miss people and apologies to anyone that he does miss. He hasn't forgotten about you. I'm putting him on the spot completely. I haven't told him about this. Do not forget Lauren, please. Just for everyone. <laughs> cool. I mean, from a coach's stance, I don't even know where to start. I know some people have had the same coach for many, many years, but I've had so many coaches. I think one of the first sessions, proper badminton sessions I went to outside of my dad's club was on that uh, weekend. They were called Graham and Linda, and they just ran this badminton session for people who loved it and kind of just ignited even more fire in me. That's kind of like what started me on the road to wanting to play on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then I started driving an hour to go to Leeds from my home. It's a woman called Jenny Drake. Any shots that I do have, all the skill that I do have, that 100% came from her. And that's something that I learned at a young age, which I think is super important. And she was in my opinion, one of the most important coaches for me as I was growing up. And then I move on. We've got, I was probably about 14 and I was going through a really, really tough time. And I was considering whether to give up or not. And I spent summer doing one-on-one -on -one sessions with someone called Nitin Panasar. He completely brought me back to life. After that summer, I went on and I was winning tournaments again. A huge thank you to him for, you know, bringing me back to life because I might not be playing otherwise. So moving down to the Bampton Centre, I've had so many coaches can't name them all because we've had so many, but they've all contributed in completely different ways. Whether they've turned me into a physical monster or improved my footwork or improved my tactics or my state of mind, each coach has brought something completely different through my senior career. And, you know, I certainly have never probably thanked them the way I should. Probably be something I do when I stop. Our current coach now, Anthony Clark, who I'm sure most people know quite well. He was the next player a few years ago. He has a fantastic relationship with myself and Chris and Lauren. We can go and talk to him about anything, which I think is so, so important. We're getting to a point now where hopefully we're quite rounded players and he just pushes us in the right direction. And I think sometimes that's a very difficult balancing act. So I'll say a massive thanks to him as well. I mean, I would thank Lauren, but... Forget Lauren, you know. <laughs> I would actually, as well, I'd like to thank Chris 
language because yeah, before I started playing with him and I was around 24, 25, I think I was, I'd never really had an opportunity to play with a more experienced player. I'd always played with someone my own kind of experience or below. He really, really dragged me up, not just from a badminton perspective, but maturity as well. He really brought me up very, very quickly. And everything that's happened to us from all our results, you know, whether it be Olympics and Commonwealth, Europeans, all these amazing things that Chris and I have achieved together, that wouldn't have happened with anybody else in England, in my opinion, other than him. Yeah. Well, there you have it, listeners. Uh, Marcus has thanked who he needs to thank there. So Jenny, Mitten, all the other amazing coaches that have steered Marcus in the right direction, as well as his current coach, Anthony Clark as well as players. He's played with Sir Lauren and Chris. So there you have it. Before we wrap up, Marcus, we do have a poll that we've been running here. So we won't ask about who you predict to win the men's doubles or mixed doubles, but we will talk about the Tokyo Olympics whenever that ends up happening. Who do you think for the men's singles and women's singles event will just go gold medal winners only? Who would you, let's not say put your money on because we don't condone gambling here at the Bamfordcast, but who do you think will take home the gold for men's singles and women's singles? I think in men's singles, you'd be anyone else but Momota. I think it would be a bad bet. So as long as he handles like the pressure well, I think on his day, no one can challenge him. So for men's singles, I'd have to go for him. Women's singles, I think is a really tough one. But I'm going to say that Carolina Moreno will do it again. I think she can. That'll be spectacular after that injury as well, wouldn't it? Yeah. Have you seen the Prime documentary? Yes. It's unbelievable at some mm-hmm. of the things that they do. And yeah. that seems like another level up from where we are. The things that she sacrifices to do what yeah. she does is unbelievable. Definitely. Okay, Marcus. So we are basically wrapping up here for this episode of the podcast. So before we let you go there, is there any way that any listeners can follow your progress and see how you're doing via social media or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not always the most active on social media, especially outside of tournaments. If you want me outside of tournaments, you should follow Lauren. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have Instagram and, and Twitter and I'm sure you'd be easy enough to find me and I'll try and keep up to date with how we're getting on. Great. So listeners, make sure you follow Marcus's journey because there's plenty more left in the tank for him. Marcus, so from Jeff and I at the Badminton Podcast, we want to thank you for coming onto the podcast again and wish you luck for your three tournaments in Thailand. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Marcus. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.